All right, guys, so last week uh, we started a new series on the theme of giving called Lavish. If you are new or new to our church, again, I, I ran the stats last week. At the end of this series, we'll have taught on giving about 5% or less than that, like 3.8% or something like that. Uh, this isn't what I normally talk about, so if you are new, the, the stereotype is, man, churches are always trying to get your money. We're not. We don't want a penny from you, all right, if you're new. By the way, if you want to give us money, that's fine. I'm not going to fight you on it. I'm just saying we're not trying. That's not the point of this thing. It's, it's to look at uh, money as a follower of Jesus. Those who would describe themselves as followers of Jesus, how do we do that in this area? And so this series is called Lavish. I think we've got, we've got a little art. Uh, it's called Lavish because we're talking about God's lavish, never-ending pour of grace. That's the word used in Ephesians chapter 1 to describe God's grace to us. It says he lavishes us with his grace, which is a never-ending, ongoing, to this moment, as you sit in your seat, pour of grace onto you. And, and, and what we want to talk about is how we respond to that grace with our lives, including our financial giving. And so last week I talked about how a series on money has the potential to be really awkward, but despite that, it's still a really important area for us to grow in as disciples of Jesus. Uh, Craig Blomberg is a leading New Testament scholar, and he says this uh, about the way we, we steward material possessions. He says this, he says, the way that we steward material possessions is the most important test case of one's profession of discipleship to Jesus. He also calls materialism the single biggest competitor with authentic Christianity for the hearts and souls of millions in our world today. And so the reality is, is there's a battle going on in this world for our hearts. And it's not just in our hearts. It's revealed in our retirement accounts and in our bank accounts, and in our crypto portfolios, that right at the center of that battle are those things. Because it is a where the rubber meets the road situation. Do I really trust him? Comes out in, it comes out through what you do with your finances. And so last week I talked about why we give, our motivation for giving. And so today I'm going to talk about who gives, the identity that makes sense of our giving. And before we dive into that, uh, I want to do a little uh, a deep dive into uh, the history of a diamond, okay? I want to show you guys a diamond real quick. I've got a picture, a big picture of a diamond. There it is, all right? Uh, do you guys know what, what this diamond is? Which diamond this is? Anybody? Nobody. Okay, cool. Huh? Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it could be an Indian diamond. Uh, it's the Kohenor. And uh, this diamond's called the Kohenor, and it's 105 carats, I just walking around with that thing on your finger. That thing's crazy. Uh, it currently sits in the Queen of England's crown, the Queen Mother's crown. She's since passed away. It's part of the Royal Jewels. If you go to, um, uh, where is it again? The Tower of London. I think we have a picture of the crown, all right? So here it is right here. Boom. Dang, right? Um, that's some bling bling the 90s hip-hop bear wasn't even ready for, all right? But it didn't, here's what I want you to know. It didn't start on this crown. There's a backstory to this diamond. Um, for centuries, India was the world's only source of diamonds as far as we knew. It wasn't until 1725 when diamonds were discovered in Brazil that people realized that they existed anywhere outside of India. And so for a long time in the Indian subcontinent, the rulers of India loved jewelry. As a matter of fact, in ancient Indian royal courts, jewelry rather than clothing was the main way you displayed how high up you were in the royal hierarchy. There were strict rules laid down to establish which level of royalty could wear which level of gem in which social setting. Um, and in 1526, uh, a Muslim uh, leader named Zahir-ud-Din Babur, I've got a picture of him, 
There he is. Uh, he came down from modern-day Uzbekistan. I know you know where that is on a map. I don't even need to show you. It's in Central Asia. He comes down the Khyber Pass, which is still there today. It's, it's the road in between Pakistan and Afghanistan to invade India. And he establishes the Islamic Mughal dynasty. And his dynasty was, was as obsessed with diamonds as the, the rulers before. The Mughals would rule northern India for 330 years, expanding their territory across all of present-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and eastern Afghanistan, all the while pillaging the mountains and rivers across those lands for diamonds and other gemstones. Now, it's impossible to know exactly when, when the, the Kohenor came, uh, where it came from, but we do know that it ended up in the possession of his dynasty because in 1628, there was a Mughal ruler named Shah Jahan, who got a picture of, of him. Um, he commissioned a magnificent gemstone-encrusted throne be built in his honor. Uh, it was built in India at the same time as the Taj Mahal, and it cost four more times than the Taj Mahal to make a throne. Let's think about that for a second. Here it is. This was called the Peacock Throne. And if you look at the top of the Peacock Throne, there's the Kohenor right up top. And, um, and for a century after uh, uh, the creation of the Peacock Throne, the Mughal Empire retained its supremacy in India and beyond. It was the wealthiest state in Asia. Delhi, the capital city, was home to two million people, which at that time was more than London and Paris combined. But that wealth and power attracted the attention of other rulers in Asia. And so a Persian ruler named Nader Shah came from Iran, modern-day Iran. There he is. He was a humble man. Uh, he went by the sultans of all the sultans in the world. Humble guy, right? And he invades Delhi. He comes from Iran. He invades Delhi in 1739. His troops kill tens of thousands of local, locals, and he depletes the Mughal treasury. Nader left the city accompanied by so much gold and so many gems that he looted the treasure, uh, that, that the treasury looted required 700 elephants, 4,000 camels, and 12,000 horses to pull it out of town. Just remember the movie Aladdin when Prince Ali comes in with like the elephants and, the, and the, it's, it's that kind of a vibe. And he took the throne with him as part of the treasure, but he removed the Kohinoor diamond and he wore it as an armband. It's a bracelet walking around, 105 carats. The Kohinoor would remain away from India in a country that would become Afghanistan, modern day Afghanistan, for 70 years. Uh, history William Dow, uh, historian William Dalrymple says that during this time, the Kohenor passed between the hands of various rulers in one blood-soaked episode after another, and episodes that sound as, as though they might be out of Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones, including a king who blinded his own son and a deposed ruler whose sh who shaved head was coronated with molten hot gold. With all the fighting between Central and South Asian factions, a power vacuum was growing on the Indian subcontinent, and the British would soon come to take advantage of it. And so after decades of fighting, the diamonds returned to India. It comes into the hands of Sikh ruler Ranjit Singh. Got a, got a picture of him? In 1813, and he loved the Kohenor diamond, uh, not just because it was beautiful and it was worth a lot of money. He viewed it through the lens of prestige and power. Historian uh, William Dalrymple continues, it's not just that Ranjit Singh liked diamonds and respected the stone's vast monetary value. The gem seems to have held a far greater symbolism for him. He won it back from the Afghan Durrani dynasty along with almost all of the Indian lands they had seized since the time of Ahmad Shah. Singh's elevation of the diamond was a major turning point in its history. 
The transition is startling when the diamond becomes a symbol of power and blessing rather than beauty. It becomes this gemstone like the ring in Lord of the Rings. One ring to rule them all. And so, for the British Empire, because the diamond represented prestige and power, it just looks irresistible. If they could own the jewel of India, right, they'd kind of uh, cast a shadow over the entire nation, and they were down to kill and take this thing. Um, and in 1839, there was a young ruler named Duleep Singh. We've got a picture of him, little boy. That's not him, by the way. <laughs> we got it? No? Okay, cool. that's fine. Uh, just picture this for a second. So um, after about five years, there's a ton of fighting, and the only person left to rule is a 10-year-old, like a Hezekiah situation in the Old Testament, and his mother. And, uh, and so what the British, uh, what the British uh, colonizers came over and did is they said, hey, um, hey, buddy, you're 10, right? They're like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm 10. He's like, do you want to see your mommy ever again? He's like, yeah, I'd like to see my mom. He's like, cool, sign this treaty and you get your mommy back. But also we need the diamond and, you know, half the subcontinent of India. And from there, uh, the diamond, and so he handed it over. Uh, from there, the diamond would move Ted Lasso style to England and become a special possession of Queen Victoria. Went back to that picture. She's wearing it as a brooch. I don't know. If, uh, if, okay, cool. I, it's like it's a necklace on a sweater uh, is how <laughs> I viewed it. And uh, the, the queens would love this thing for about 100 or so years. Uh, it, it made its last public appearance in 2002 when the queen mother, uh, it's the mother of Queen Elizabeth, the, the queen right now, the mother died in 2002. And uh, it's, it was on her casket at her funeral. And so the Kohenor is currently in England, and it's part of the crown jewels. Um, but this has created a ton of controversy because people think different things should be done with the diamond, right? What do you guys think should be done with it? Give, give it to who, right? So, so here's the thing. Um, one historian was quoted as saying, if you ask anybody what should happen to Jewish art stolen by the Nazis... Everyone would say, of course, they've got to be given back to their owners. And yet we've come not to say the same thing about Indian loot hundreds of years, taken hundreds of years earlier, also at the point of a gun. What is the moral distinction between stuff taken by force and colonial times? But here's the problem. Historical ethicists uh, often point out that the rulers who once owned the Koh-i-Noor headed nations that no longer exist. And the fact that the diamond usually changed hands by force before it was ultimately taken by force of the British Empire, doesn't help the case that there is a clear rightful owner today. One scholar adds, that's one of the biggest differences between objects taken during colonial conquest and art and treasure looted by Nazis. The difficulty is in ascertaining who has the first and most legitimate claim to anything. And so claims have been made. India has made a big claim. They've made uh, three official ones, 1947, 1953, and then the year 2000. Um, uh, and 16, the, the Indian Cultural Ministry stated it would make all possible efforts to arrange the return of the Kohenor to India. Um, Pakistan, in 1976, and three times since, uh, have said that they own the diamond. Uh, they made it very clear, this diamond was mined in our mines, uh, likely by someone with uh, uh, um, blood from this, this area. I'm trying to go fast here. Then in 2000, the Taliban popped up on the scene. They're like, the Koh-i-Noor is ours. Everyone loves the Taliban, right? Their, their spokesman, Falza Modify, said the Koh-i-Noor was the legitimate property of what, is one, of what is today Afghanistan, and it should be handed over to the Taliban immediately. 
The history of the diamond shows it was taken from us, from Afghanistan to India, and from there to Britain. We have a much better claim than the Indians, he said. The Afghan claim derives from Shah Shuja Durrani, uh, his memoirs, which state he surrendered the diamond to Ranjit Singh, the guy that got it back, while Singh was having his son tortured in front of him. So they argue the diamond was taken to India illegitimately in the first place. So because of the four-way dispute over the diamond's rightful ownership, there have been various compromises suggested to bring the dispute to an end. The first one, kind of a Sing King Solomon vibe, is cut it up into four pieces. Right? Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, final piece retained by the British crown. Another suggestion is that the jewel be housed in a special museum, uh, museum, I never say it right, museum, museum, whatever, it's fine, at the Wagah border between India and Pakistan. Uh, have you guys ever seen, there's a lot goes down at that border. Um, however, this, this doesn't deal with the Afghani claim, doesn't deal with the British claim, and then the British government rejects all these compromises and has stated since the end of the British rule in India that the status of the diamond is non-negotiable. The Prime Minister said if we, start giving, if we give this away, we will end up with nothing in the British museums. Uh, so, what should England do with the diamond that is currently in their possession? And I think we would agree that it all depends on the answer to one very specific question. Who does the diamond actually belong to? Now, this is a series on giving and money, and questions often get posed to financial planners and parents and pastors and real estate agents and friends who want financial advice. And often people ask questions like, what should people do with the money that they find in their possession at any given time? Should they save it? Should they spend it? Should they invest it? Should they give it? Should they hide it? And you know what? The decisions regarding what you do with the money currently in your possession comes down to the answer to one very specific question. Who does the money actually belong to? So until we get that squared away, it's, it's hard to know what to do. And here's what we know is throughout the story of Scripture, God cares about, about what people do with the money that's currently in their possession. And if we're going to faithfully follow and serve Jesus as Lord in our world today, it means that we need to think through what Jesus teaches us about our faith and our treasure, the treasure we, we have right now. We, get, we can take the diamond down. It's going to be hard to compete with that. Now, a lot of us, when it comes to Jesus and money, we are taught, we, we kind of grew up, uh, if you grew up in church, you probably heard giving, you know, giving a tithe, giving 10% to the church. And from time to time, if you feel generous, like around Christmas or Thanksgiving or the end of the tax year, uh, we'll give a little extra to serve the poor or a special offering to the church. But the other 90% is ours, baby. That's free money. That's spending money. That's walking around cash. But the truth is, is that everything we own or earn we have uh, every cent we have, every breath we have, every bit of energy or time or ability we have has been entrusted to us from heaven by God, and it belongs to him. And this idea is called stewardship. And so the question I'm going to answer today is, are we stewards or are we owners? What's the identity of someone who is, who is holding on to money? Uh, a scholar named Bed Patterson says this. He said, a steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. Um, a steward's primary goal is to be found faithful by their master or by, their, uh, by the person who's entrusted to them. 
And, and they do this by wisely using the master's resources to accomplish the tasks de delegated to them. There can be no understanding of stewardship until there's an accurate understanding of ownership. The steward cannot do his job well without clearly grasping who owns and who does not own what is entrusted to their care. And for each of us, when we grasp that God is the owner and that we as stewards have been entrusted with the things we have to serve our master, it changes everything about how we use everything. So again, this big question, are we owners or stewards? Uh, we have an iPad at our house. I'm preaching from it right now. Um, you might not know this because it's a, a whatever, three-year-old iPad. You might have a cooler iPad. You might have like dope technology. I don't know. You, got, you get a lot going on at your house. Um, at my house, this is the Koinor <laughs> with my kids. One of the things that drives me crazy, I'm talking to you, Clive. One of the things that drives me crazy as a parent is when I let one of them use it and then they start fighting over it. Uh, like, or later on, right, like I let one of them use it for 15 minutes and he's like, I'm not going to share it with the other siblings. My favorite's when I ask for it, for it back and then they tell me, it isn't fair, you always get to use it. Even though it's something I paid for, something I worked for that I graciously let them use, right? They don't understand stewardship, it's the idea. But either do we so often. In the Bible, from beginning to end, Scripture emphasizes God's ownership of everything. Genesis 1 to 2, God makes the world and everything in it, and then he puts mankind on the earth to steward his creation. Stewardship is humanity's original and primary calling, to look after God's worlds, to bring order out of chaos and beauty out of, um, of brokenness and turn it into something um, that is as it should be, to cultivate it. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. First Chronicles 29, verses 11 to 12 says, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. Riches and honor come from you. And you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hands, and it is in your hands to make great and to give strength to all. And so all wealth comes from God, and even the ability to carry out the work to acquire wealth is a gift from God. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, For every animal, this is God speaking here, For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, at least I own, I own my body. I own my body, right? This is America. I can eat junk food all day if I want. America. Can't believe what counts as a medium soda nowadays at a fast food restaurant. Like, it blows my mind. I can sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I can eat whatever I want to eat. No one's going to make me wear a mask. No one's going to mandate a vaccine. I can take the life of a baby in my womb and call that person made in the image of God a terminated pregnancy. We live in a culture that says you own your body and what you do with it is up to you and it's accountable to no one but you. But scripture does not teach that idea. Even your body is his. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 19 to 20 says, don't you know that your body is 
is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. So what Paul said to, to a culture that was more sexually um, licentious than ours is. You and I belong to God because we're his creation, and we belong to Jesus if we're in Christ because of what he did on the cross to purchase us back to him. And so this idea of stewardship puts God at the center of our lives and our decisions, and it reminds us that we are a part of his big story. Rather than him being a character in our little story, it elevates him to his rightful place as king and lord and brings him the honor and glory that he deserves. This idea of stewardship is a powerful reframe. Randy Alcorn says this about stewardship. He said, stewardship is living with the awareness that we are managers, not owners, that we are caretakers of God's assets, which he has entrusted to us for this brief season here on earth. Guys, it's a brief season. Jackie and I just celebrated our, our 16th wedding anniversary and it just, I'm not even trying to get a clap. I, it was sobering to me because of how fast it has gone. Life goes, it really is a vapor. John was joking. He's known me almost 20 years. He's like, bro, you have so much gray in your beard. I don't know if you, if you were able to grow facial hair when I met you. And now I've got like a Santa Claus goatee going on. I've been told I'm not middle-aged, but I think I'm close. Life goes quick. We're entrusted with God's stuff for a brief season. Then he says this, how we handle money and possessions demonstrates who we really believe is the true owner, God or us. Uh, Jackie and I went on, on uh, Jackie and I and the kids went on vacation recently, and Sarah and Julia house sat for us while we were gone, and it also involves a bit of dog sitting. Now, well, they're at our house, right? They're, they're, they're not owners, they're stewards. They have more authority. They can decide, for example, when Poppy takes walks while they're there. Poppy, he's our Boston Terrier uh, dog, Poppy. Take him on walks, right? So, so would it be appropriate for them to take him on walks? Yes. Would it be appropriate for them to put down Poppy? <laughs> right? Or to neuter him? Take him to a place. I'm not saying they would do it. Take it easy. <laughs> or to sell him? Or to trade him for Julia's favorite dog, a golden retriever. No, right? That, that's an owner move. That's not a steward move. And so Jesus teaches us a lot about stewardship. So we're going to look at one of Jesus' parables today. We only have about 10 minutes left. Relax. That diamond thing was longer than I meant it to be, but we're through it. Matthew 25. Matthew 25. We're going to be starting in verse 14. We're going to look at one of Jesus' parables on stewardship. Matthew 25, verse 14, Jesus says this. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one, he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, depending on each one's abilities. Then he went on a journey. Immediately, the man who had received five talents went, put them to work, and earned five more. In the same way, the man with two earned two more, but the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. 
After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. Verse 24, the man who had received one talent also approached and said, Master, I know you're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even that he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this passage, Jesus teaches that all Christians have received something from God. We are all God's servants, and we all have talents entrusted to us. Parables are designed to teach us something um, spiritually true using a picture from a physical world that they would have understood. Now, we don't live in that world, so we don't understand all these pieces. But the first one is, what is a talent? I remember uh, a guy taught this once at a youth group. He's like, talents are literally talents. Like, America's got talent. There's some, there's some truth to that. So what is a talent? In New Testament times, a talent was a monetary unit valued at the equivalent of about 20 years' wages for a day laborer. In approximate modern equivalents, a talent would equal today about 600000 U.S. dollars. So it's a lot of money. We miss this in the translation, but part of this parable is saying that God has entrusted you with gifts and abilities and skills and resources that in his eyes are valuable and worth a phenomenal amount. You are valuable to God, and he has made you and entrusted you with a re- an amazing trust. Like to trust you with his stuff is significant. And so uh, our talents in our, our life today, um, they are monetary, um, but they're more than that. They're our influence. They're our spiritual gifts. They're our health, our strength, our time, our intellect, our relationships. These are some of what we're called the steward for God's glory, the glory of Jesus. Again, in the parable, the first and second servants, the first and second servants acted industriously and earned a return on their entrusted amounts, probably by setting up some sort of business. But the third servant, right, he, he took his six hundred thousand, he buries it in the ground. And again, it was common practice back in the day to, to do that to keep stuff safe. You didn't have steel. Uh, it was a lot harder to, to keep your stuff from being stolen. And so, one thing you could do, old school treasure map style, was like find a spot and bury it there. I don't know if you guys can imagine finding a safe place somewhere in San Diego, 
digging a hole, putting $600,000 in the ground. Now, the master was away for a long time, and then out of nowhere, he returned. Jesus describes uh, in other places in the Gospels that his return will be like a thief in the night. Uh, Earlier this year, when I was staying in South Africa, the first night uh, I was staying at Grant Michelle's house, a thief broke into the house. And I remember uh, he he took off and ran uh, by the time I had woken up. But Grant knocks on my door, and he's just like, Andy, are you in the room by yourself? And I'm like, dude, who else would be in here? And he said, dude, a, 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 a burglar's broken into our flat. We don't know what's going on. And, it was great. and I just remember thinking, the thief of the night thinks true. You're never ready for it. We were chilling that night. Had a good meal, great conversation, first night in, taking pictures with the baby. And, uh, and then out of nowhere, he shows. And so in the same way, this master leaves and out of nowhere. He shows up, and he wants to settle accounts. And it's the same with Jesus. 2,000 years ago, he walks the earth. He taught he lived, he loved, he demonstrated the gospel, and he literally lived out the gospel. He dies on the cross for the sins of the world. He rises again. He ascends to heaven. And he tells us that he would return. He gave us a commission and a mission, and he said he would return once again to check on, uh, you know, to, 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 to judge the world. And again, one day he will return. And Scripture says that we're going to stand before him and give an account of our lives. Again, stewards are accountable for what they have done with what's been entrusted to them, not for what they did with what wasn't entrusted to them. That's so important. I think for some of you guys, you think, man, I just don't have that much to offer. Who who even cares? No, 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 no. They were rewarded for their faithfulness, not the prophet. When you read the text, he doesn't go five and five. He's like, you were faithful. He doesn't go two and two. He never talks about the amount. He gives the the guy who made five and the guy who made two the same affirmation because it wasn't the number. It was the faithfulness with what they had. They did what they had. Now, again, for those of us who are in Jesus, our eternity with God is secure. It is guaranteed. This passage is not talking about working for our salvation. It's working from our salvation. This passage is saying, as those who've been exposed to, to Jesus and claim to follow him as Lord, how we lived our lives in such a way that others might encounter this Jesus and that the purposes of God could be fulfilled in this world through our sphere of influence, through, through what we are stewarding. And eventually one of them here is well done, good and faithful servant. And I don't know about you, I want to hear that someday. I mean, if you've ever taken like a love languages assessment, I'm a big words of affirmation guy. And uh, to think about the king of the universe one day saying, and meaningful, not like saying it out of flattery or I have to, but like, well done. Like your life was what it was supposed to be. It was not perfect, but you faithfully followed me and obeyed me and loved me. Let's celebrate. Again, faithful stewardship in this life will result in being given greater responsibility and stewardship in the life to come. So what we do in this life does matter into eternity. Again, I want to just be really, really clear on this. Some of you guys beat yourself up because you think you're not doing enough. But actually, you're being perfectly faithful to what God has entrusted you to. He hasn't asked you to be another person. He's asked you to be you. 
He's not asking you to have money you don't have and steward money you don't have or steward relationships you don't have. He's saying steward the relationships you do have in front of you. I know some of you guys, you really wrestled with, with singleness. And you're like, man, I wish I, wish I was married. And, and that's a great desire. And hopefully that happens one day. But you can still steward the relationships you have that aren't a spouse today. I know some of you guys are married. You go, man, I, I wish I had kids. I, I really want kids. And, and you've dealt with the pain of infertility and the confusion around that. And again, I hope that desire happens. And God makes a way for that to happen one way or another for you to experience parenthood. But you can steward the the relationships with you right now, your marriage and your friends and your family. So he's like, man, if I had a lot more money, I would just give a ton of money away. If I was rich, I would give a ton of money away. And God goes, no, the people who have the hardest time giving are rich people statistically. The, the theologian P. Diddy once said, more money, more problems. It's true, you're like, oh, I got more assets, I got more liabilities now, I got more, you know, I got to need more padding. I'm getting pretty used to this. And so God's going to judge you on what you did with what he gave you, not, not with the thing that you, you don't have. God's not going to judge me on the size of this church. The American church is obsessed with size, not substance. Quantity, not, not quality. I'm going, to, I'm going to answer, 1 Corinthians 3 says, as a church leader, did I take care of the people? Did I actually help them become like Jesus? Did I equip them? By the way, church leadership always gets weird when leaders think the church is something they own instead of something they steward. If you know this thing's God's, you're not messing with this bride. This is his girl, and he's who he says he is. It's a sobering reality that how pastors treat churches and, and people in those churches. doesn't mean you're not going to rebuke them, but it means it needs to be for their good, not, not for you. Um, if you have a business, right, or, or you want to have a business, God's, God's not going to judge you on the size of your business, but on how you steward the business you did have. Did you take care of people with your business, or did you take advantage of people? Did, did you love and honor your employees? Are they stoked to work for you? God's going to judge you on that, not, not your profit margin. God's not going to judge you on how much you accomplished at work, but your faithfulness while working. God will not judge you on the amount of people you influence, but the faithfulness with which you influence those he did entrust to you. For a lot of parents, uh, I think we can overlook our kids and go, I want to make a big difference in the world. It's like, no, that's in front of you. Again, almost all of my pastoral work has to do with helping people undo the pain and lies and wounds that they received in their family of origin. And those people walk out, and in studies show, most violent crime is connected to people who were deeply wounded growing up. Again, if you, you raise kids well, you're impacting and changing this world. It's so important. And by the way, parenting always gets weird when parents think they own their kids instead of they're stewarding their kids. And so God's not going to judge you on how much you have when you die, but how you stewarded the money you had when you lived it's not the size of the trust, and it's not the size of the return, but the size of the faithfulness that gets praised. There's a story in Mark 12. There's a woman who puts in the two coins. That, that, that amount of money isn't transferable to us. It's too small. And he's like, look at that. Stop. The Pharisees were walking around. You know, they, had, they literally had trumpets. They're like, check out our giving. They had like a little parade to put their big sum in. That was a large sum, but it wasn't a sacrifice for them. And she puts in what she has, and he's like, hold the phone. Everyone, stop. Look at this. This is worship. 
This is faithfulness. It's not the size, it's the heart connected to the gift. So stewardship doesn't start when we're rich, when our salary goes up, when, when our business grows. It starts with what we have now. If you don't do it with the little things, you will not do it with the big things. You're not giving sacrificially today. You're not going to do it when you have a lot of money. I promise you will always find a reason not to do it. Some of you guys know uh, our family was given um, $140,000 by someone we hardly know for a down payment for a house two years ago. It's an older couple. I hardly know them. They're not in our church. And we were just, obviously, we never thought we'd own a home. We're losing our minds. We're like, I, what, the, I, like, it's just awkward. I don't know if you ever had someone like pay for a meal and you're like, I don't know about this. This was humbling and amazing and scary. We're like, and then we, I mean, we overclick. We're like, this isn't a loan, right? Like, that would be great too if it's interest free. But like, it's like, no, 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 it, it's a gift. And, and he said, don't thank us too much. It wasn't actually our money. And don't forget, it's not actually your house. He said, share that house with others. They said, the reason we believe we were supposed to do this is Brad said, you do a lot of ministry out of your home. We love that about Brad's ministry. And he said, he learned it from you. We're assuming that's going to continue with this house you get to steward. It's not about you. Verses 21 to 23, just talk about sharing your master's joy, that there's a reward for faithful stewards in heaven the joy or the festival of God. This passage and others speak about rewards in heaven for how we live in this life as followers of Jesus, how we steward what God has given us. Now, the picture of this text is a master or a king and his servants, and we've seen how we're called to surrender everything to Jesus because everything is already his. What's amazing, though, and unique to the gospel story is that our God surrendered everything for us, even though everything belonged to him. Jesus sets the perfect example, the, the perfect picture of stewardship. Philippians 2, verses 7 to 8 says, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And, we had, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The night before Jesus was crucified, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That is steward language. Father, what do you want to do here? How do you want to do it? He prayed, if there is any other way, please can we take it. But otherwise, I am your servant here to do your will. And on the cross, Jesus gave his entire life in obedience to the Father. For you and I, we're called to surrender. And we're going to need help. We're not going to do it perfectly. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for his power to live out this radical calling of being stewards of God servants of God. Jesus' motivation was, was love for the Father, but also it was love for you and I. My prayer is that we'd be motivated by that same type of love and we'd respond with a similar um, picture of that sacrifice. It's not going to be the same level, but something that, that is cross-shaped. It, it's truly sacrificial. Um, I'm not exaggerating, guys. Like, I, I'm not trying to, um, we're, we're, we're trying to, to we're going to do ministry with the money that comes in, and we're trying to reach budget goals and all that stuff. At the end of the day, though, you guys, I'd rather have a smaller church with a smaller budget if the gifts came from hearts of sacrifice. I really mean that. This isn't about me just having more money. It's, it's when I present you guys as an elder, when I give an account for your souls, did you, did you ask them to prove that they, they trusted me? 
I don't want a crowd of 500 people who give like $12 each. And again, if $12 was your sacrifice, great. Amen. That's perfect. But I, want, I don't want a crowd that, 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 that covers up for a heart of greed and selfishness. And so throughout this year, would you go, Lord, what do you want to do with your stuff? My house, my apartment, my money, my relationships. What do you want to do? I am your servant and I am listening. There are two things that, um, that, there are two questions I think we should ask ourselves in this area of stewardship. The first one is just straight up. Do you think you're an owner or a steward? Do you think you're an owner or a steward? I'm not, I'm not interested in spending a bunch of time trying to convince you you're a steward or owner. I want you to go before God and ask him, am I an, you know, am I an ungrateful kid who thinks I'm an owner or am I a steward who gratefully receives your gifts, and then seeks to do what you want me to do with them. The second question, and I find it really interesting in the text, the servant who doesn't invest anything, he gives a reason for it. He's like, I knew you were a hard man. His, his reasoning is linked to what he believes about the character of the master, of the Lord. And he goes, man, I knew, I, I was scared. I didn't think I could trust you. I didn't think I could take a risk. And so, and so for a lot of us, um, this question of stewardship, part of what it comes down to is the fact that we don't trust that God is who he says he is. We don't believe he's as good as he says he is. We go, if I actually trust you with this area, I'm on my own. I'm an orphan. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You're like, I think you might leave me. I think you might forsake me. For some of you guys, you were shaped by parents who did leave you. And, and we can project that onto God. For so much of our lives, we're like, man, I'm doing this myself. Finances is going to be that same thing. But the gospel says you have a new father now in heaven and you can trust him. He is not a hard man with you. And Jesus, you know, have a father who is safe and stable and secure and sovereign. He cares about you. He will take, he will take care of you. And so the second question I want us to wrestle with after this question of, am I, do I really view myself as a steward or owner? The second question is this is, um, do I really believe that you are who you said you are? Jesus, Father, Spirit, Triune God. Do I really trust you? That you're good, that you'll take care of me, that you're for me. So I'd encourage you to take a second to reflect on those questions. Do you believe you're a steward or an owner? And ask, by the way, ask God this in prayer. And then two, um, do I really believe that you're as good as you say you are? And if not, why not? Father, speak to me about that. And confess to him where these things are true as we get ready to take communion. We'll remember the one who gave himself for us.